you're listening to The Insecurity Project, solving the insecurity problem at a global level. This podcast is a mixture of interviews, coaching sessions, and personal development content. You'll hear me chat with experts, authors, speakers, and individuals who've gone on to do great things in their life as a result of working through their insecurity. You'll hear brave souls being willing to have a live coaching demonstration recorded where they work through their insecurity. And you'll hear 10 Minute Tuesday, which is a chance for me to deliver high quality personal development content to help you on your journey. I hope you find it useful. Now on to today's show. Hey folks, it's Jamin Fraser here. You're on the Insecurity Project podcast. I have the great pleasure of interviewing Ellen Jackson. Ellen is a psychologist with 20 years experience, specializing in positive psychology and workplace psychology. Um, I'm really excited to talk to Ellen today. I was mentioning to her before the call that I got to go to a psychology coaching conference five years ago. It was such a weird space because the coaches were really suspicious of the psychologists and the psychologists suspicious of the coaches. Um, but the, the idea that there is there needs to be research back science behind all uh, optimal human behavioral change work. And, and I think that's the value that uh, someone like Ellen can bring to this space. So I'm really excited to hear your insights and your journey, Ellen. Thank you so much for being part of the show today. You're very welcome. I'm really glad to be here, Jamin. And I am one of those strange hybrids who combines the coaching with the psychology. So I, I can understand your experience at that conference from both perspectives, I think. <laughs> well, it's it's exciting that you're able to find a way to do both because I think at the end of the day, I, I, like, I am a very pragmatic person so I orient myself always around what works. And to me, that, that is the proof of the value of an idea if, it, if it's able to hit the ground and produce good results. So, Absolutely. Um, you know, anyone who can, can give me tools that work, I'm just uh, astounded by that and always excited by that. So, yeah, really, really interested to hear some of your own insights and experiences and some of the stuff that you've uh, worked through in your own life. Uh, so uh, yes. as is the great as is the plan with all guests, I like to dive back to the beginning because it seems to me to be very fascinating uh, and and important in terms of where a person is today, as to where they started, and the things they had to work through. So I'm fascinated by the role your parents played in shaping your own belief about yourself, your sense of confidence, self-esteem. So tell us a bit about what it was like growing up in your home. Yeah, look, that's such a wonderful question and to be honest, I don't get much of a chance to talk about my own personal experience in relation to these things. So I'm okay. kind of excited. It's given me an opportunity to reflect as I, I thought about the questions that you proposed. And look, I mean, probably like most of us, my parents have played a huge part in who I am today um, and that's largely positive, I'm pleased to say. <laughs> They, you know, we, we know that everyone, you know, grows up social modelling is kind of how we learn. So we learn from that role modelling that our parents provide. And, and my parents were, I think, excellent role models for me and for my younger sister. Um, my mum is incredibly independent, resilient, tenacious, um, helpful, always fully supportive of us. But by the same token, placed pretty high expectations on us. I think that was pretty much um, or very much part of the family culture was that, you know, we're, everyone's expected to set themselves goals, to work hard okay. to achieve those goals and um, to 
really be pressing forward, I think, in most areas of our lives, but, but very much according to what our strengths and interests are. So it wasn't like anybody said, you must you know, participate in this sport or you must achieve yeah. this goal. It was very much, you know, who are you? Understand who you are as an individual, what interests you, what do you enjoy? And if you're going to pursue something, then pursue it to the best of your ability. So that was kind of very much a part of what, or the culture, I suppose, of, of the environment that we were growing up in. Um, and problem solving was another big piece, I think, as I reflected, you know, I, and it's something that I'm now trying to hand down to my children, that no problem can't be, well, no problem goes unsolved, basically. So, you know, any problem that you face, it just work hard and you can find a solution to it. Um, so very, a lot of agency, as we call it in psychology in our family, a lot of, you know, self-belief that you've got the skills and if you try hard, you can do it. I'm not familiar with that term in that context. Can you just quickly explain that? Yeah, so agency is basically our um, belief in our ability to, well, it's part of self-efficacy. So our self-efficacy is our belief in our ability to achieve our goals. So agency is that kind of inner sense that we have, that we have an ability to do things. Yeah, sure. Do you have any idea, it does make sense, do you have any idea of the origin of that word in that context, why it's called agency? Ah, that's a very good question. I don't know off the top of my head, but I can certainly find out for you. <laughs> well, I might um, include some research in the show notes around that. I'm just fascinated by it because I think um, it's such a, an interesting word, an interesting way of describing that term. I really like it. I'd love to understand a bit more about the depth of why that word was chosen to describe what it means to have control and and uh, power towards your own goals. Yeah, well, the definition or derivation of it, um, you know, when you think about it, even just in terms of a layperson's term, you know, if you give somebody agency to do something, you give them therefore the power to yeah. act on your behalf or to to undertake a, an activity. So it's really the same thing. It's just an inner sense. So an inner sense of having control. Um, having an ability to initiate and execute and control your actions in the world. Great. I love it. That's really the, cool. Yeah. Okay. So that so was that, really instilled in you from your mum. Well, from mum and dad. So, you know, mum, mum's a very practical person. So we saw a lot of her doing this. She was kind of the role model. Um, okay. And she was also there. My, my dad had a um, career that took him away from home quite a bit, a fair bit of travel. And so... Mum was sort of the person who was there demonstrating the day-to-day and what, what life could and should perhaps look like. And, and Dad, on the other hand, I mean, very similar. They've got very similar values, um, similar styles in terms of certainly the way they raise children, which is good, um, same argument. Yes. But, um, you know, Dad wasn't as present all the time, but he was more uh, kind of the voice of wisdom, I suppose, for me, uh, still is. He's <laughs> still around, still yeah, helping no. us all the time. Um, and, you know, so he used to tell us things. And there's one thing that stood out as I was reflecting. He used to say to us, you know, you're healthy, wealthy, attractive, intelligent, and you have the world at your feet. 
And that was something that I remember him saying to me several times over my lifetime. And it wasn't there to build a sense of narcissism. <laughs> it was there to give us perspective, really, to, to really realise that of all the people in the world, we had an awful lot available to us. And it was up to us to take advantage of that and then go out and, and do what we could in the world. Yeah, fantastic. Um, that's, that's really cool that you're sharing this, and thank you for being so honest about your upbringing. Um, I'm fascinated about the internalisation of those beliefs, though, because as a, a recurring theme of all the guests is that you know, whether a parent did a good job or a poor job at this, um, a parent doesn't have the power to directly instill or install beliefs inside a no. child. So no, just because your dad said ourselves. wonderful things to you, um, that was all that it took to say, oh, you're amazing, you're wonderful. Oh, fantastic, great. That, that's it. I'll never question that ever again and that will become my firm belief for the rest of my life. Well, then that would be easy, yep. but it turns out it's not quite like that. So um, were you aware of insecurity limiting you or kind of are you struggling to own those beliefs about yourself at any point in your life as you grew up? Oh, goodness. Um, yes, of course. I think we all do at times, don't we? Um, I, when I was, I, I've always been, I'm introverted by nature, um, yeah. probably socially quite reserved, although it might not be apparent in my professional life because I spend a lot of time getting up and talking in front of other people. Um, yeah. There's a bit of, you know, learned skill that goes along with that. But as a child as a teenager um yeah certainly you know i i was socially a bit reserved you know i had good friends but it wasn't a huge group of friends i wasn't really sure who i was or what i wanted to do i didn't really feel like i had a lot of direction um i did the things that were expected of me i finished school and i went to university but i don't think i had a really strong sense of purpose or a lot of clarity at that point and and that when I mean, it depends a little on how you define insecurity but yeah mm -hmm. certainly i had uh doubts and fears and worries um i still do in some areas um but that was probably a particular time and it was just a period of you know learning who i was i think you know, uncertainty yeah, sure. that you know over time that grew um my knowledge of who i was what i had to offer the world what my strengths were, what my skills were, what my capabilities were. And then I think those statements perhaps that my dad, you know, perhaps they weren't that meaningful at the time. I didn't really understand. But over time, I was then able to kind of internalise those in a more meaningful way because I had context. Yeah, for sure. Uh, how do you define insecurity, by the way, since you... <laughs> Well, I don't know how to define it. I mean, it, it, it's not really a term that we'd use in psychology. Um, Is that right? We used to, yeah, look, as far as I'm aware, it's not something I've come across. So, I mean, we talk about things like self-esteem. We talk about things like self-efficacy, as I mentioned before, self-concept. Um, I think these probably all overlap a little, but how do you define insecurity? Well, the fear of not being enough, I think, would sum up almost everything about insecurity in one way or another. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, so in psychology... underlying sense of inadequacy at some point. Yeah, okay. So in psychology, we might talk about self-esteem, which is 
really uh, it's a, the perception that we have of ourselves. So if we have a negative perception of ourselves, like I'm not good enough or I am, you know, uncertain about who I am or I don't feel like I'm worthy, any of those sorts yeah. of yeah, messages, yeah. we talk about that in psychology as being self-esteem. Um, this stuff's complex in psychology. There's a, there's a lot of overlap between concepts such as self-esteem, self-image, self-worth, self-confidence. Um, you know, the, the wonderful thing about science is that we have to kind of get really granular and pick out exactly what we mean and come up with very specific definitions because otherwise there's no clear way to study them. Oh, so psychologists like to break... Sorry, okay, you're keep going. Yeah, I was going to say psychologists like to break things down to, to quite nitty-gritty little definitions um, in order to be really clear about exactly what it is we're talking about and then to be able to, to study them and, and do the research. I love that approach and I think I'm um, big fan of Jordan Peterson's work. I'm not sure if you've read his 12 Rules for Life. I'm reading it at the moment, actually. I'm about, uh, oh, wow. I'd say a third the way through. <laughs> it's an excellent book. It's a- I'm really enjoying it. It's a dense work, isn't it? There's so much. It is, it is. And I love how he, you know, he says, right, I'm going to start with a provocative statement about something that couldn't really capture everything I want to say. But in order to make that statement make sense, I'm going to have to tell you 20 stories from science, from religion, from politics, from history, yeah. weave it all together. Yeah. And then, yeah, and it's quite a philosophical in part. Point, but it, sorry? It's quite philosophical in part. You know, yeah, some of the ideas. You haven't got to rule 10, so you're only the third of the way through. Rule 10 is be precise in your speech. And and I think it's basically a lot of what you just described there in the scientific approach. If you you say we're trying to solve the problem of fear, that's such an abstract term and, Mm -hmm. you know, so big. Where would you start? What do you mean by fear? How would you approach that? Uh, You know, so that is not a very useful way of, delving into a subject so being precise is naming exactly what it is that you want to solve and yeah exactly, exactly and I think that, that's very much something that we talk about in psychology is, is really understanding because it's it's easy to have a kind of a a global sense of fear or dissatisfaction or worry um, but that doesn't give us much to come back to that term agency to do much about it. It's only when we can really unpick it and understand exactly what it is. You know, what is the emotion that you're feeling? What are the words that you're telling yourself? What are the things that you're worried about exactly that we can then start to say, right, how would we perhaps challenge those beliefs or how would we work to find a solution to that problem? Or, you know, what kind of action can we take? And if we don't know exactly what we're dealing with. If it's just a kind of an amorphous feeling or idea or worry or concern, um, that really becomes overwhelming. It's hard to have any agency in that situation to be able to kind of, you know, really take action and make some progress towards resolving it. Yeah, for sure. Okay, so we'll come back to your journey in a moment. I'm just, just, yeah, uh, no worries. <laughs> my head's down this rabbit hole now. I, can, <laughs> I need to ask one more question. So, um, psychology uses the term self esteem to kind of sum up here uh, not being worthy or not being good enough. Um, but if an example like Donald Trump, to me, is such a fascinating character and, uh, you know, so polarizing. 
but uh, some really interesting observations about his life because I think most people, when they look at Donald Trump, would assume um, with almost, you know, almost certainty that his self-esteem is very high. Um, and I, I would think in many ways that it is. It comes across very confident, very brash, very narcissistic almost. Um, yet people close to him lately, more and more of his colleagues and people who've been on his team at some point or other are coming out and in the media publicly saying, here is one of the most insecure men I've ever met. Um, and and all that he does is driven from this deep insecurity and this need to prove and perform and garnish his own sense of adequacy. Um, so to me, there is a real distinct difference and an importance to separate those two terms. Uh, have you got any thoughts on, on that observation? But I, my my thoughts is, I mean, I think the starting point was people assume, and, and I think that's the thing, you know, we, we can't know, nobody can know what's going on inside of somebody else's head. You know, poss- possibly someone's therapist <laughs> might be the only person really who could know what's going on inside somebody else's head. So when we observe external behaviour, we can make assumptions but those assumptions tend to be based on our own knowledge, our own belief, our own values, um, you know, about what's going on for somebody else. Um, it's something I try really hard not to do about anybody <laughs> because as a psychologist, I know that we have these complex inner worlds and sometimes we don't even know what's going on in our own heads. You know, it takes a lot of self-awareness. Um, there's been some really interesting research by a woman called Tasha Urick um, in the States into self-awareness. And she, and I can't remember the name of her book, but she was saying that she and her team have discovered that, you know, the majority of people feel that they're pretty self-aware. I've forgotten what her figures were, but it was sort of in the order of 80 to 90%. If you ask people, you know, how self-aware are you? Um, They'll say, you know, yeah, sure. Um, But when they actually drill down and do some tests to discover how self-aware people are, it's something in the order of like 10 to 15% of people are actually self-aware. So there's a big gap there. Um, so a lot of us don't even know what's going on in our own heads. So making assumptions about what somebody else might be thinking or feeling is, um, I'd say, dangerous. Okay. But to answer your question, I mean, yeah, absolutely. You know, people are complex. And what you see on the outside, you know, what you might see from uh, Donald Trump or anybody, any public figure, and bearing in mind that what we see is not necessarily reality either. You know, we, we get edited snippets from news agencies um, and, you know, it, it wouldn't necessarily be reflective perhaps of even what was going on at the time. There's not context, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but, yeah, you could absolutely have somebody who appears terribly confident and uh, self-assured on the outside who, like most of us, would have concerns about themselves or perhaps yeah. what we call, what I'd call domain-specific, I suppose, uh issues around not even self-esteem necessarily because that tends to be a more global thing but self-efficacy so our ability or our belief in our ability to undertake something you know um, life is complex and I might be very confident in my professional domain but less confident perhaps in my ability to run a marathon that I'm very lacking in confidence in my ability to run a marathon does that make sense yeah Yeah. sure Okay, well, thank you for answering that question. Well, back to your journey. So mm-hmm. can you can you pinpoint uh, key 
moments or or experiences, uh, learnings that helped you embed a healthy sense of self as you grew older and enabled you to kind of, I mean, for, for you to have worked in a space in 20 years and to have got the results you have and be spoken of as you are, obviously there's a sense that this, this really suits you and this is kind of what you were designed to do, if maybe that's a big assumption. Um, but it's, it seems to me that you, you're in your space doing doing some good work and that is central to how your values are, how you think. Um, and so to be where you are today, I'm wondering kind of how you got there. That's, that's my long-winded question. Uh, were there yep. key yep. steps, milestones in you being confident to step into this space, I suppose? Yeah. Um, okay, so, well, there's sort of two sides to that question or two answers to that question the first you sort of touched on which is one of the things that's made a huge difference to me and actually wrote about this recently in a blog post has been the use of some of the tools that psychology has to help give us a bit of that self-awareness and self-insight that I mentioned before so when I started out so I finished school went straight on to university I actually started doing a commerce well I didn't just start I finished doing a commerce degree I enrolled a commerce degree at the University of Melbourne um largely because I got the marks to get into it not because I really knew what I wanted to do. That goes back to that kind of period of, of uh, insecurity perhaps in my life as a teen. So, um, But what I did know that I wanted to have a go at studying was psychology. My mum had studied it at university and we had always talked a lot about it. It was part of those conversations growing up was about, you know, in, what we, in psychology we call individual difference. So what makes us unique individuals what are our characteristics and our talents and our strengths and our capabilities that might be unique to us so that had been a conversation we'd had growing up so I thought oh I'm going to go study psychology so I enrolled in that and I loved it you know and I think the contrast between doing that and things like economics and accounting which I did but I didn't particularly enjoy gave me some insight right from the beginning that this was something you know you get the vibe use a very technical term <laughs> you know, yeah. when you want to read the topics when you're excited about learning something in the lecture when you learn that easily you know your, your brain just retains that information easily they're all indicators that that's playing to your strengths that that's kind of perhaps where you're meant to be so whilst I didn't have a lot of clarity even at the end of my degree because psychology is still an incredibly diverse field and I kind of knew I didn't want to go into clinical or therapeutic work. Um, I've always enjoyed being at the high performance end of the spectrum. Yeah. But at the time, and this is a while ago now, there weren't the options. You know, there wasn't so much in the way of workplace psychology as it is now. There was no positive psychology. Um, most of the opportunities were still in more traditional areas of psych, which are counselling, therapy, um, hospital type work, clinical work, which didn't really kind of excite me all that much. So I ended up going into business, which is sort of a separate story. But what I learned or one of the things that I had access to during my studies was uh, the various assessment tools that psychologists use to help people to uncover who they are, what they're good at, what interests them, what drives and motivates them. So the tools, the tests, the inventories. So I used those. I, you know, as part of your studies, you kind of complete them all yourself, so you get a bit of that insight. Um, yeah. And you're also 
then get to go and test other people as well. So, you know, I got the IQ, the, the full IQ test out and found all my unsuspecting friends and family and put them through that process. And I, I love the assessment process. I still do. Um, it's, it's a big part of the work that I do is actually helping other people. I often provide what I call um, discovery tests, which are psychological inventories and assessment tools to help people to uncover, you know, what are their strengths, what are the things that give them energy, what are the things that motivate them, what are their values, how do their values play into their behaviour um, and unpacking that, that's part of the coaching work that I do, kind of using that as a baseline and unpacking that to help people get that self-insight. So that played a big part for me, I think, in not just clarifying my direction and my path, but also that self-belief and that confidence that we were talking about, understanding who am I as a unique individual, what do I have to yeah, offer sure. the world, um, you know, and, and how might that play out with regard to career choices and work choices. Mm. Um, sorry, were you going to say something? Oh, no, I was just going to say, um, so as you explored those tools and saw how they impacted your own life, have they become a key part of the work you do with others now just because yes. firsthand you've, you've seen how effective they are? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. It's, it's you know, I... I truly believe in them because they've really worked for me. So to be able to assist other people, um, you know, it's it's not just a good opportunity for me work-wise, it's quite a joy <laughs> to see people's eyes light up when you're kind of going through a, a profile and they go, oh, yeah, that is me. I'd never really thought about it that way. Or, you know, to get confirmation about something that perhaps they believed about themselves, but this is like an objective you know, almost like a third party, even though they answer the questions themselves. So it's not, but, you know, it's an objective, more objective tool that then can then reflect that back to people. And then we can have those interesting conversations about, you know, what does this mean? How might you use this knowledge now that you've got it? How does that fit in with some goals that you have already that you're trying to achieve? You know, it provides lots of interesting meat for a coaching conversation. Yeah, sure. So... Uh, the tests that you use, are they tests like Myers-Briggs? Are they first typical personality tests or, or IQ tests like you mentioned? Or are they tests that have been specifically designed uh, within the psychology world that are not as easily accessible to the... Yeah, they tend to, they tend to, like, I mean, like most psychs, we've got pretty tight, well, like all psychs, we've got tight ethical constraints that we have to work within. Um, yeah. And, you know, I've... It's horses for courses. You know, I, the Myers-Briggs I do use, I have used. I find it interesting as a talking point, particularly in a group setting, you know, in a, a uh, perhaps a, a team setting in a workplace because it introduces a concept. It introduces this idea that we're all different. Um, I wouldn't go pinning anything on the results of sure. a Myers-Briggs. Um, you know, it hasn't really got what we call the good psychometric properties behind it that, that other tools do. So the things I tend to use are things that have been developed by psychologists in the in the labs um, at the world's wow. best universities. Yeah. And some of those are actually reasonably freely available, um, not easy to find. <laughs> you kind of need yeah. to know where to look. Um, and some of them are, are only available or accessible by registered psychologists. Okay. Uh, are there any free ones that you would recommend to, to people to go look for if people are fascinated 
by kind of yeah yeah absolutely what would you recommend so one of the one of the best ones and this you know i've mentioned positive psychology which is an area that i practice in and it's a relatively new area of psych um perhaps only 20 years old at best really and it's the aim of positive psychology is to help more people in our community to thrive and to flourish, so to move people up to a really positive end of the mental health spectrum because traditionally yeah. psychologists have spent a lot of time focusing on the other end of the mental health yeah, spectrum sure. and, and assisting people who are struggling. So it was identified by Martin Seligman, who's known as the father of PodPsych, that as a field we haven't really placed enough emphasis on, on understanding at a deep level what helps people to thrive, flourish, be resilient um, and and achieve what they want to in their lives, have good relationships and all of those components. So there is that Martin Seligman himself and some of his colleagues developed an instrument or a tool called the VIA Strength Survey, VIA, um, and that is they actually use, provide it freely available to the public um, so that then they can use the results as part of their ongoing research. So it's kind of oh, a really? bit of a quid, quid pro quo type arrangement there. So when you sign up, you register and provide a few basic demographic details, um, okay. then complete the questionnaire, you get your profile back, and there's the option to buy more in-depth reports. Sure. And what they get then is this basic demographic data they, and a profile so that they can then use that for further research, as I understand so that's a great one because it's looking at our psychological strengths and our psychological strengths are really those things that give us a sense of energy. So there's 24 of them and there's a lot of research that's been done behind. In fact, the book that was produced by Martin Seligman and Chris Peterson um, to support the development of this instrument, it's like 800 pages long or something and it looks at things like values and strengths across, you know, history, across cultures, um, and then all the scientific stuff. So it's, it's huge. Um, and the idea is that you identify those 24 strengths, particularly your top five. We talk about your top five strengths as being the things that really demarcate you as an individual in terms of, you know, what gives you energy, what are the activities and ways of operating in the world that help you to really feel alive and engaged. And all of that we know contributes to a sense of well-being. So it's part of a positive mental health approach. Sure. So the, the idea being that if you pay attention to those strengths and allow yourself to move closer toward those strengths, that's going to have a positive net result on your mental health, well-being. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And it is very, like you said at the beginning, you like a practical tool. It is very practical. So what are the things that you can do and to give you an example, love of learning is one of my top five strengths. Um, so, you know, if I get the opportunity to read Jordan Peterson's book, for example, you know, I'm, yeah. I'm learning there. That engages me. That um, energizes me. I like that process of learning and that is contributing to my, the development of my mental health and well-being by being able to actively engage in those things. Yeah, sure. So people just Google that. That would be a place to find that. Obviously, I'll, I'll include a link. Yeah, I can send you a link, which you can pop in your show notes. Yeah, absolutely. Right. But yeah, if they, if they Googled VIA Strengths, so V-I-A Strengths, um, they'll find the website. It's attached to, I believe, the 
University of Pennsylvania in the States. Okay. Um, do you think there are other key pillars in terms of maintaining a sense of security and confidence and um, agency beyond just focusing on strength? Are there other things that you think are really important? And oh, so many things. Yeah. <laughs> so many things. Um, yeah, a lot of what I do is actually what we call psychoeducation, which is really just helping, you know, educate people, talk to people, and that's why I have a podcast, that's why I write blog posts, that's why I do presentations um, largely in workplaces but also publicly, is to be able to provide people with some of this basic understanding of what are the things that help us to thrive and flourish. Um, and some of those are really practical elements like we know that movement is good. You know, there's, there's kind of basic of mindfulness, exercise, diet and sleep are all really important contributors to thriving and flourishing. Sorry, what was that? Mindfulness, exercise, diet and sleep. That were the four you mentioned. That's it? Yeah, they were the four. Um, Yep. So, you know, that is if you want to start with some core basic level and and, um, there's certainly things that I advocate strongly for and implement in my own life. And then you can kind of take it up to another level, start to look at some of the models of well-being within positive psychology, models like PERMA, so P-E-R-M-A, which stands for positive emotion, engagement, relationships, meaning, and achievement. So that's another model. So if we can ensure that we're getting a bit of each of those, so experiencing regular positive emotion, and that encompasses not just things like happiness, but awe and optimism and hope and love and curiosity and really there's a a long list of positive emotions. We can get some of that in our life every day. You know, we're in good shape. Engagement taps into what we're just talking about with those strengths and doing the things where time kind of stands still and disappears at the same time. Relationships, obviously really important. That's each component of being human is that we need to be connected to other people and feel that we have a sense of support and love and care from others. A sense of meaning, which is a far more complex concept, but having a sense of meaning and purpose in our life. And then the final one is accomplishment or achievement. So feeling like we are, humans are, are driven to move forward kind of intrinsically. So feeling like we're progressing and, and achieving our goals. And they don't have to be huge goals. They can be quite small goals, but it's that striving towards something that we know contributes to our well-being. So that's one of the well, things that I talk about. I know I've just given you a whole two-hour presentation in a couple yeah, of Yeah, yeah, thank you. Obviously, there's, there's so much stuff there. I love how practical it is and, and how it simple is, it is. It is. Um, yeah, just and cycling back to one, one of the things you mentioned, sorry to cut you off. Uh, so the first thing you said was, the first list was uh, mindfulness, exercise, sleep and diet, maybe not in that order. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. It seems to me culturally that, you know, people get the fact that diet's important. Exercise, yes. I, you know, I think it seems that spike in, you know, gym memberships, in things like park running, in, um, in things, you know, cycling. It, it seems that exercise, people are going, yeah, yeah, yeah that's, that's a thing and I'm doing that more and more. Even mindfulness, um, you know, it's a very common term in today's world. Sleep, mm-hmm. though, seems to me of that list of four, still seems to be the most culturally unpopular. Uh, yes, I think I'm that's going to change. Well, 
I'm fascinated. One of my um, one of my favourite rituals is a is an afternoon nap, and I just love having fun in my social settings with that by by letting everyone know that that's actually in my diary, and I get an alarm going yeah. every time I set that alarm. I go, yes, it's nap time, and when I when my head hits the pillow, and I you know I've got my eye mask on, my fan blowing, my mouth guard in, my nice pillow. I I say to myself, I love my life um, as I'm going off to sleep, and. <laughs> and you know, my friends, I'm constant the brunt of many jokes around you know, nap time. Um, but it still seems that you know, culturally, the sense of drivenness, hustle, work harder, sleep less, you know, birth, burn the mm. candle at both ends of the spectrum, as Catherine Kim would say. Um, you know, that seems to be still deeply ingrained in what people think is going to get them more out of life. The idea of sleep yeah. means very counterintuitive yep. and countercultural, but you think it's going to change? Look, I'm, I'm optimistic only because I'm starting to see more research and more discussion of the research in the kind of um, business press and, and entrepreneurial press um, about the importance of sleep. You're right, it's been very underrated. It's so important not just to our emotional resilience and anybody who's lived through life with small children in the house realise how emotionally unresilient you can become if you haven't had enough yeah. sleep um but you know it's it we need it we need good sleep to embed memory to be able to learn um to be able to regulate a whole lot of our kind of underlying processes sleep is really vital so i'm starting to see a bit more research coming out around that um i actually have a, a friend a, a wonderful woman neuroscientist dr sarah Mackay, who i interviewed on my podcast um a few months ago and she has a TED Talk, and I can send you the link to this as well. She is a, an advocate of the nap, and she actually delivered a TED Talk on the topic. Um, she naps herself, but she can go. She goes into the neuroscience of it, so what, what's happening in the brain and how is it helpful to have the afternoon nap. Yeah, so I, you're I in very good company. Yeah, you need to see that, and you, you need to use it as, as you know in your armory to defend against those naysayers <laughs> about the nap. Yeah, well, so, it is, you know, it, uh, sorry, carry on. <laughs> no, you're right. So, yeah, it, it is fundamental to our well-being. And it's interesting because when I interview a lot of my uh, fellow psychologists, particularly in the post-psych and performance domain on my podcast, and I ask them, you know, what, what, do you, what are your basic tips for well-being? And the same things come up every time. It is mindfulness, exercise, diet and sleep. And when I say exercise, it doesn't mean heavy gym sessions or, you know, training for marathons or anything like that. It's really just basic movement, getting up and moving around. It's really, really important. Um, and you're right, you know, I think there is a, a culture that says, or certainly has for a long time said that if you keep working longer hours and slogging away at it and neglecting sleep and probably neglecting a lot of these other wellbeing you know, um, components, then that's the path to success. And yet... The research coming out now and the research, you know, perhaps even only over the last 10 years is saying, actually, we've got that all backwards. Um, we need to work on our well-being and on our happiness. There's a great book by, and in fact, my absolute favourite TED Talk by Sean Acor, um, Happiness Advantage. And he basically describes how, you know, how this whole notion of, you know, work hard and grind yourself into the ground to succeed is scientifically backwards that we need to really work, be working on our mental health and well-being 
And if we're in tip-top mental shape because we get our sleep and we exercise and we've got, you know, understand who we are and we play to our strengths and we've got good relationships, then we allow ourselves the best opportunity for success. That's really fascinating. Um, I'm thinking about some research I read recently around financial stress and this research suggested that financial stress makes people dumber. So, or yep. the fact of poverty, poverty makes people dumber. So, just uh, the essence of what they were saying was the pressure the, to survive financially kind of consumes all your brain's energy and power that takes that you could be using on luxury items like creativity and self-esteem and um, growth and agency, and it's all invested in how do I not die. And so yeah. they did that this research sense. on on sugarcane farmers and they did they said these farmers typically earn something like 80 or 90 percent of their income one day of the year you know when their when their crops are sold um, and mm. so they did the, the iq test a week before harvest uh, and a, a month after harvest and or something like that and and the, the results were staggering just because one they were operating from a place of lack and scarcity and survival but then when the money is in the bank and they're just, you know, there's an abundance of funds, it's like, oh, my goodness, now I'm free to actually think and feel and, and thrive. And yeah, that makes so a lot of sense. Yeah, so I'm wondering if it's kind of similar in terms of, you know, diet, meditation, sleep and exercise. If you're not taking care of those things, then you're almost in survival mode. Like you're definitely just existing and all your brain's resources are probably used up in not dying but if you take care of those things then you have a really healthy base um, to then thrive from so then a whole bunch of energy can be invested into forward progress and life giving events creativity absolutely that, yeah absolutely yeah absolutely yeah i definitely agree with that these are baseline activities yeah. that if we yeah, can yeah. get them you know if we can nail them then it does afford us a lot of opportunity to start doing the next level stuff that can really make a difference you know if you are chronically sleep deprived you just yeah. you can't think well enough you know <laughs> to take right. stuff to the next level you you are not emotionally resilient enough you know um there's been some really interesting work um in PodPsych by a woman called Barbara Fred Fredericksen who has a model called the Borden and Build model of positive emotion. And so her research has told us that when we're feeling good, when we're feeling happy or optimistic or hopeful or loved or you know those positive emotions I mentioned earlier, then our brains, we're cognitively able to kind of broaden our thinking yeah. and build on that. So we're able to come up with more ideas, problems, we see solutions when it comes to problems. We're able to build on that. We're more creative. So we're broadening our cognitive capability and then building on that. And it's the opposite of what we know happens. And I think this is very related to what you're describing as kind of that survival thing. When we're in a negative frame of mind or experiencing negative emotions, our whole system kind of shuts down. We tend to focus. And I always say to people, when you're in a crappy mood, what the problems, you know, what, what do you see when it comes to solving problems? Well, you tend to just see more problems or the problems seem insurmountable. Yeah. And that's that kind of, so it, it takes you on a downward spiral. The problems just feel bigger. 
your ability to think creatively about how to solve the problems diminishes so they kind of are bigger and you can head down this negative spiral versus that positive spiral of broadening and building when we are in a more positive frame of mind. So a lot of these things are all tied together. I think that's really fascinating. I might have to get you to send me the link to that research regarding the sugarcane growers because, yeah, I think, you know, if, if we're just coping every day, um, then we don't have the opportunity to do more and, and that's where success and happiness lives. Yeah, great. I love that idea of take care of the baseline. That's a, that's a yeah. great starting point for people who are really not in a great place mentally, emotionally, spiritually, or, you know, just they are struggling at the moment and to deal with fear, insecurity, or the sense of being enough just seems like such a mountain. Um, mm-hmm. Take, mm-hmm. Care, take care of the baseline. Get some sleep. Yep. Go, go yep. get some movement, some sunlight on you. Take care of yep. your diet. Yep. Uh, and just some moments of mindfulness, some moments of stopping, breathing, observing, yeah. what's being external, what's going on in your head would make such a big yep. difference. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. It. So, yeah, that's where you start. If we're talking about practical things, that's where to start. Excellent, thank you. Um, have there been key books that have, you mentioned a couple already, but are there, are there books that you love or you, you often recommend to people in in this space of uh, self-esteem and, and overcoming insecurity? Yeah, I, um, I would start with, as I mentioned before, the father of positive psychology, so Professor Martin Seligman. Um, he has a book called, here's a couple of books. The first one on the topic of positive psychology is called Authentic Happiness. And the second one is called Flourish. Okay. And they are both great places to start if people are interested in either positive psychology from a kind of academic understanding, what is the field and what's it all about. But they're both really practical books as well. They're written for the reader to be able to implement the activities themselves in order to find authentic happiness and to flourish. So yeah, they're they're on my top 10 list, absolutely. Excellent. Uh, Any others? Um, so Sean Acor's book, as I mentioned before, The Happiness Advantage, is a great yeah. one. Um, I'm just having a look. I'm going to have a little wander into my library and see what <laughs> I've forgotten. It, it's funny when you ask, because when I ask my you know, psychologist that I interview, you know, can you recommend your books? And they're like, oh, I have a library of books. We all have libraries of books that mm, we um, yeah, yeah. that we love and that we rely upon. Um, so, look, other things that uh, are really helpful, have been really helpful, Mindset by Carol Dweck, which is something we haven't spoken about, but this idea of the growth mindset, that came from her work. Okay. Um, it's called Mindset, the New Psychology of Success. Um, she, and, I've heard the term growth mindset, but she's the, yeah. uh, that originated with her. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So this was her work um, from Stanford University, and it explains what the growth mindset is. It it is a, look, it's a great term. It's a wonderful concept. It has been kind of uh, slightly misappropriated, I think, in some circles. But um, that's that's perhaps a long conversation for another day. There's another little book that I've got here that I love. It's called Pursuing the Good Life, 100 Reflections on Positive Psychology by Christopher Peterson, who sadly is no longer with us. But he actually started writing a blog for Psychology Today um, right at the beginning, I think, of the positive psychology movement, if you want to call it that. And yeah. this is a compilation of those blog posts. Um, really, again, really practical, interesting. He's, he's a, had a beautiful way with words, 
um, snippets into all of the topics that we've talked about today and more. Yeah, great. Uh, is there anything we've missed? Any final thoughts you think would be really important for people to understand uh, that are on this topic of overcoming insecurity and finding out who you are and giving yourself permission to flourish? Oh, um, look, I think we've both discussed a lot and also only scratched the surface because, yes. you know, like I said, it's, for me it's been 20 years' worth of, of learning. Um, but, I, I look, I think one of the things that I know has helped my coaching clients significantly has actually just been what we call the cognitive triangle in psychology, which is the fact that our thoughts and our feelings and our behaviour all drive one another. They're all connected. So the way you think affects the way you feel and the way you feel affects the way you behave. So to give you a practical example, if I wake up in the morning having not had a good night's sleep and I'm in a cranky mood, I the thoughts that go through my head are automatically things like, oh, this is going to be a terrible day, this is going to be really hard, you know, um, I'm going to struggle, I'm not going to enjoy today. Then, you know, things like, oh, I don't know if I'm going to be able to get that work done, I don't know if I'll hit that deadline. All of those sorts of thoughts go through your mind. And, of course, the automatic effect is I start to feel worse, I start to feel overwhelmed, I start to feel crankier, <laughs> I start yeah, to yeah. feel... Negative. So the, the thoughts affect the way you feel and then that affects the way you behave. So I'm far less inclined to, you know, enter my office with gusto and say, right, what can I get done? You know, I might drag sure. my heels. I might be cranky with the children because I feel like they're not being fast enough. Um, you know, I, I might procrastinate. <laughs> Never. Never. Um, I might procrastinate, you know, getting the, the tasks done. So all of these things are very closely linked and they all drive each other. So if we can pay attention to our thoughts and challenge some of those thoughts or even just the awareness. So for me, you know, knowing that and saying, right, when I get up in the morning, just think, okay, if I keep thinking like this, I will not feel better, I will feel worse. I have a choice. I can change the way I think and it's going to change the way I feel and that's going to change the way I behave. And that simple process um, I know when I've explained it to coaching clients has really been a kind of a, oh, wow, a hard type moment to see the power that we have over okay. what happens to us on a daily basis. Um, that's, that's really interesting. I haven't heard it described quite like that, although you know, a lot of what I do in terms of state management with people is that very process. Yeah. Uh, but I, I like, I don't know what you think of Anthony Robbins, whether you... Um, uh, find any value in his work or not. Uh, I, I think he's contributed some really wonderful things and obviously there's some stuff that's a bit out there from him as well. Uh, but one of the things I think he's, he's a master at is this whole state management piece which is you know, based on this idea that mind, body, emotions are all connected. So you change one, you change the other. Um, but I, I think his approach would be to lead with your body rather than your thoughts. So. Yep. Some of his rituals are like he's got a plunge pool, um, you know, or he does breathing exercises, or um, you know, there's um, postures that he'll use as a way of mm -hmm. whatever state he finds yep. himself. He goes yep. right. Well, you change any of these three, they all change. So I think the easiest one to change would be my body. So right, what? Well, I'm going to dive into a freezing plunge pool for ten seconds. 
and that will that will have an impact on my thinking and my emotions straight away. Uh, <laughs> tell you what I'd be thinking if I dived into a freezing sponge pool. I don't think it'd be positive. <laughs> yeah, sure. Um, so I found that approach particularly useful as leading with my body. So to the ritual. Yeah, yeah. Look, ritual. and they they are all obviously intertwined. I think. I think most psychologists would argue that unless you have an awareness of that thought process uh-huh. yeah. um, and the capability to challenge that, you know, you could do an awful lot of the right things. And there's absolutely no doubt that, you know, I know for me just going for a walk, you know, if I'm really yeah. stuck on a problem or I'm just in a cranky mood or I just, you know, need a bit of freedom, going for a walk makes a huge difference to my state sure. of mind. So there's absolutely no doubt that the activity, the body side of things can have an impact. I think there's probably, I don't know, as a psychologist, and of course I'm biased, um, you know, a lot of power in the thinking side of things. Yes, to get that process. To really undertake. Yeah, you kind of then starting, you can dig in then to a deeper level around the core beliefs, the things that we started our conversation with. Um, So, yeah, but, you know, absolutely the same notion and I think people like Anthony Robbins um, have a lot to contribute um, and they do provide a lot it's just that the psychologists are the ones doing the science to understand the mechanisms and the how behind that stuff yep so we're we're all working towards the same goal of helping others to fulfill their potential yeah we just take different avenues to get there sometimes (laughs) that's right Um, and I'm incredibly grateful for people like you who are doing the rigour the academic rigour and the science around proving why these things work I uh, I got part way through a, a master's in leadership uh, a few years back now, and just <laughs> just confirmed my deeper suspicions that the academic world uh, is not my strength. <laughs> that's not your path. <laughs> that's not my path. So uh, yeah, so I I deeply value the work that you and others are doing to underpin uh, the science around why these things work, which just gives practitioners like me so much more confidence to really apply these things in the real world knowing why they work so thank you look you're you're very welcome i i don't do the research myself but i certainly read and examine the research and draw on all that wonderful work that's being done my colleagues in in the labs around the world so um you know i have a huge debt to them and my goal is really to try and make that stuff more accessible so being able to take and understand what they've done to communicate it through sources such as your wonderful podcast um, just means that the message gets out there because I think that's the thing that historically psychologists have not been particularly good at. So I see myself as a bit of a conduit and yeah, you're also providing, also providing a conduit to our, um, to our fabulous listeners. Absolutely. Well, that feels like a good place to end the conversation. Like you said, we could talk for hours about these subjects and we have just scratched the surface in many ways. So again, I'm deeply grateful for what you've shared and we'll be sure to share all of those references in the show notes, the books you've mentioned, the uh, the test that you mentioned and some of the, the key ideas. So uh, where can people find you, Alan, if they're fascinated by your work and want to understand more about what you do? Where do you hang out online? Yeah, so I hang out at potential.com.au. That's my website where you'll find, I have discovery tests, some of those tests online there. You'll find my blog post and a bit about the work that I do in workplaces. And the other place that I hang out as of this year is on the airwaves as well with the Potential Psychology Podcast, which can be found on all of the 
good podcast apps and players and iTunes and Stitcher and Google Podcasts and all, all the places that you find podcasts. Excellent. Fantastic. Okay, thanks, Ellen. We'll end the conversation there. You've been listening to The Insecurity Project. If you're interested in finding out more about dealing with your own insecurity, check out the 30-day online Overcoming Insecurity Bootcamp combines high-quality frameworks with one-on-one coaching to help you eradicate the fear of not being good enough and give yourself permission to really flourish in life. For more information, check out jamonfraser.com.au.